And we're back with another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. Today, we are answering some questions that we've received about the history of the Enneagram. There's a lot going around these days. So why is it important that we know the history of the Enneagram? Is that a rhetorical question or is that a lead <laughs> yeah. into the conversation here? <laughs> yes. yeah. So it's important because, you know, for a couple of reasons, okay? When, first of all, we get asked the question all the time, right? As people who work with the Enneagram, the question is, well, where did this come from? And there are a whole lot of different answers out there. And as much as I try to avoid the whole topic when I'm doing a training, <laughs> It certainly comes up every time, or almost every time. Some people don't care about it, but most people right. want to know. And it's a fair question. Where does it come from? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, just the answer, it's really long. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the answer is also unsatisfying, right? Because there's so much mystery, so much speculation, so much conjecture, and so much BS about the history of the Enneagram. Mm. Um, that it makes it a difficult question to answer. Now, I know when we first wrote Awareness to Action, uh, we simply attributed, you know, what we were doing to something that came out of the work and was derived from, in a minor way, uh, from Claudio Naranjo, who I see as kind of the root of the Enneagram of Personality as we talk about it, you know, most commonly. So, but I think it's important if for no other reason that if you're teaching the Enneagram or, you know, explaining it to other people, people are going to ask. And so you have to have a good answer. It is difficult because it's, even if you have an answer because it's unsatisfactory, it's like, well, in some ways it, people are looking for some source of authority. Yes. Of, of where this came from. And when there isn't really that great of a history of authority, it then undermines the validity of it so right. how do you how do you work with that yeah so and and we have a tendency to do that uh with lots of things right who invented this and uh and even in areas in which there was no real inventor we tend to come up with ideas about a source you know so for example if we think about it psychology in general the image that always comes to mind is freud Right mm -hmm. now, Freud didn't invent psychology; it existed before him, and there's no real delineation between what is psychology and what prior to that was simply considered a branch of philosophy. You know, it's not like somebody came up with this completely fresh and anew. But we want to look for some sort of source. Okay, and so again, we have the tendency to do that with the Enneagram. And I would argue that the Enneagram is something that is uh, derived as a process. And even what we have now, you know, as we know, there are a lot of different approaches to the Enneagram, right? So the awareness to action approach is something different. And, you know, I could sit here and say, oh, well, I, you know, invented the awareness to action approach, but it's really just something derived from things I've learned from other people. Okay. Now, mm. that does not mean, however, that the awareness to action approach existed prior to me. Okay. And this is something important that we'll come back to. Okay. Because there's this tendency to want to make the Enneagram thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. You know, there's this mist, you know, this story that it came from the Sufis and the Sufis got it from these people and et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the fact. When I, when I first started studying the Enneagram, people said that it was 2,000 years old. 
Now I've heard people say 5,000. And, you know, it, <laughs> and, and I recently heard people suggest it's 30,000 years old, which is just bonkers. <laughs> okay, I'm going to come out and say it. It's just bonkers um, because it misunderstands history in a sense. It misunderstands the process of intellectual ideas. Okay. You know, Newton invented calculus. Okay. Some would argue that Leibniz beat him to it. You know, they sort of came up with it at the same time, but he just, you know, came up with calculus, figured it out. And, but it was based on other mathematical and ge geometric ideas, right? It wasn't completely independent of anything else. Uh, so Newton, you know, made all these huge advances in mathematics and in physics, and then he invented calculus. Now, we can't say that calculus is thousands and thousands of years old, because it's not. Math is, okay, and calculus is built on a foundation of mathematics, but it doesn't mean calculus is thousands and thousands of years old. And I think we have to make the same claim about the Enneagram. It may be built on ideas that go back to Plato and perhaps even before, but that doesn't mean that Plato or anybody else during that time was practicing the Enneagram as we know it. Okay. Mm. And I think that we can comfortably say that the first place we have any view of the Enneagram as a diagram itself is with Gurdjieff. Okay, now Gurdjieff claims to, claimed to have gotten it from the secret Sufi orders. That's just a made-up story, and uh, or at least I believe that's just a made-up story. I have a good friend who is a Sufi scholar, and he said the Enneagram just doesn't exist in the Sufi traditions, right? It's just not there. And um, so we have the diagram, with Gurdjieff. And, but when it comes to the Enneagram personality, it really starts with Oscar Echazo, who had this, you know, insight into human nature, and he came up with the Enneagram of personality. And then it was really given shape as a psychological tool by Claudio Naranjo. Okay. Naranjo taught it to a bunch of people over the years, particularly in Berkeley, California. And from there, like an open source model that it is, it has had a lot of different variations and derivations that have come, I think, primarily from Naranjo's work. It is interesting for me to see how people enjoy trying to look for older sources and making it kind of like really, really old or mystical. Why do you think people want that? Why do you think people kind of search for that kind of authority or history of the Enneagram? I think it's because if you have some secret knowledge that other people don't, if you have some deep insights to the mystery of reality that other people don't, then you're pretty cool. Right, And everybody wants to be pretty cool. Everybody wants to feel like they have some secret knowledge that other people don't have. And if we can make something seem more complicated and mystical than it is, then it makes us feel, you know, uh, much bigger, much more insightful. We're the one bringing this ancient wisdom, this ancient secret knowledge to the world. 
we're the prophet of this thing. Okay, that's a story that feeds our sense of importance a lot more than just, oh, you know, it's this open source system that people have been developing for a long time. And here's my take on it. It's funny because that doesn't work with my clients and I guess it doesn't work with yours either. (laughs) I'm not cool if I start telling the people about these thousands of years of history of this and this mystical stuff. It's just not cool. (laughs) You're you're absolutely right. And so, you know, in in quantum physics, for example, there are... Yeah, you know... (laughs) Yeah, and we said it would be a short episode. Let's see about that. (laughs) I'm going to keep it short here. Right. So in quantum physics, there are some people who try to use quantum physics to make these huge claims about the nature of consciousness. Okay. And I'm not going to go into them now, but you know, oh, quantum, you know, quantum physics proves that there's this, you know, uh, non-local consciousness, blah, blah, blah. Well, it doesn't. Okay. But that's besides the point because a working physicist's response to that would be shut up and calculate, right? Because scientists, practitioners, don't care about that stuff, right? It, the question is, does this work or not? And how do I make it work, okay? And that's what I care about. My clients accept the Enneagram, not because I tell them these magical stories about Sufis and 30,000-year-old, you know, whatever. It's because I can say, hey, you know what? This can help you. Okay. This can produce results in your life. That's what they care about. And in fact, to Maria Jose's point, if you start telling them all these fairy tales, you just undermine your own credibility. Right? Especially mm-hmm. because we know that it, so, many of, so much of that is not true. Like uh, the right. story of the Sufis, I know that um, Sufis have told you that it's not there, but we also have each, um, Naranjo's video saying that he made it up so it's not that we're just neglecting their stories or not believing them we have the person who said it came from the sufis denied now well, yes, it's because it's because it's a secret society of Sufis. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is the, right. which is the foundation of all <laughs> conspiracy thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, see that for the fact that he is covering up, and I have had people say to me that they think Naranjo lied about lying, right? That he's <laughs> lying in that video. So people can go to YouTube, search on "Origin of the Enneagram," Claudio Naranjo. You can find this video of him saying, "Yeah, I just made that up." Uh, I wanted people to accept my ideas. He refers to Oscar Wilde saying that Oscar Wilde said, if you want people to believe your idea, attribute it to some important person. He was studying with Idris Shah at the time, studying about the Sufis. He said, oh, I'll say the Sufis made it up or created it. But the fact that, you know, again, to your point, Maria Jose, now that he's covering it up, that just proves that it's secret. It's funny. There's also the freedom that people had to say whatever they wanted to because they might never get caught. You know, when I first started studying the Enneagram and get got together with some people here in my home country, somebody said, yeah, I studied with Claudio Naranjo when Don Riso was his assistant. And I was like, what? Are you sure about what you're saying? 
because I don't think they have ever worked together. And I don't see Don Rizzo, who I had just met, having been Claudio Naranjo's assistant. And uh, sure enough, she never said, I mean, shared that story again. But until then, because nobody had met any of those people, she could just get away with it. And so much of the story, of the history of the Enneagram might have unfolded like that. Because, I mean, who knows? But you can just make anything up. So let me share another reason why I think people love stories about the Enneagram and love to refer to stories. Because it allows them to claim that they're teaching the real thing. Okay. If, mm-hmm. if I can say that, well, the Enneagram came from this and I'm teaching that version of it, then I have more authority than these people who are teaching something different. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if we are honest about the Enneagram being, again, I refer to it as an open source system, meaning people have come along. You know, look, Echazo taught it to Naranjo, but then disavowed what Naranjo did with it, right? Said, no, Mm. he doesn't get it. He's doing it wrong. Naranjo comes along and teaches it to a bunch of people. They start putting their own spin on it, and Naranjo says, well, no, they've got it wrong, okay? And then that happens with every succeeding generation of people who make their own innovations, okay? But the history of intellectual ideas is a process of evolution, right? I mean, look at psychology that we talked about. There are very few people that take a, a Freudian approach to psychoanalysis now. There are a bunch mm. of different approaches to psychology. You might have heard this, but there are different takes on Christianity, for example, right? <laughs> you know, Luther came along, you know, and you know, mm-hmm. posted the 95 Theses on the wall and was considered a heretic. Okay. And now there are some people who have gone from there and so forth. This is what happens is that ideas evolve and that's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that approach that is not strict to the source is invalid. It's all about number one, is this model internally consistent? Is it externally consistent? Meaning, does it describe? what it claims to describe, that's external consistency. And does it not contradict itself, right? Do you say, you know, fives are like this, fives are like that in ways that are not compatible. So there are lots of different approaches to the Enneagram that are valid as long as they meet those criteria and as long as they stay within some fundamental rules. But if we think we have the original source we can consider other people heretics. We would be mm. heretics for some people. In of some course. People yeah. <laughs> this is all just a self-justification exercise here, right? <laughs> I know, but I see you. Uh, so I think it might be interesting for people to hear what we know, what we have gathered along the years about how it started. You just mentioned... Oscar Ichazo, and then how Claudio Naranjo, by the way, all of that happened in Chile, my home country. Um, how Claudio Naranjo. <laughs> wow, so you must have the original no, well, source. I, I, you are the I'm original from here, but no. <laughs> and then Claudio Naranjo went back to um, the States and taught it to some people, right? Yeah. Amongst those people were Sandra Maitri, uh, Bob Oaks, the Jesuit. 
was Hamid Ali there? I mean, uh, Hamid was Hamid. there. Yeah, A. H. Alma, who writes as A. H. Alma, yes. his real name is Hamid Ali. Uh, he was there uh, with Sandra Matry. Uh, Peter O'Hanrahan was there. Let's see. Um, a woman named Kathleen Spieth, mm-hmm. who wrote a short book on the uh, uh, the, the Gurdjieff work, and th- there there were some rumors, you know, about people being there, and people always try to make claims, right? So, um, but I think that pretty much captured the bulk of who we know who are still on the scene. But then they all went off in their different directions. For example, Kathleen Spieth taught it to Helen Palmer. Okay. Uh, Helen was mm-hmm. not there in that original program. Bob Oakes went back to Loyola and the Jesuit approach, you know, of which Don Riso, Jerry Wagner were a part, came out of that. But even they put their own spin on things, right? You know, Jerry Jerry's work is different from Don's. Yeah, and uh, to me it's interesting... Uh, it was interesting to hear that it wasn't like a whole course, but they met every month or every week or something like that. And yeah. s- some of them didn't go to all the sessions. So they missed <laughs> some part of the... T- yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's that's the story that I understand. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, that that is the narrative that I understand. I've heard this. Um, that makes can- it entertaining, though. Well, yeah. so so let me let, let, you know. So let me talk about that, right? So, for example, my understanding, which I've heard from people of Naranjo's circle, was that Bob Oaks left after week number eight. It was a ten-week course, my understanding, one night a week, and um, Bob Oaks, the Jesuit, left, and he did not uh, learn about the subtypes, which is why when you go back to the early Enneagram literature. In the Jesuit world, there was just wasn't much talk of the subtypes early on because they didn't mm. know about it. Um, but it was in Helen Palmer's first book, right? She talks about the three different subtypes. And this idea of wings came from something that Oakes misunderstood about what Echazo talked about. Naranjo said at the end of week eight, well, next week we'll talk about the wings that Echazo talked about, but he had a very specific idea in mind, and it wasn't this idea of you're an eight with a nine wing or an eight with a seven wing, right? That's something that the Jesuit school developed later in an attempt to understand variation among types without understanding the subtypes early on. Okay, so if you listen to somebody like Sandra Matry, she'll say, yeah, this idea of being this wing or that wing is just not what the original teaching was. And that's not how, you know, they talk about it. And Claudio Naranjo doesn't teach it that way either. Right, right. Then what Then what was he talking about when referring to wings? So Achazo had this idea that if you want to understand um, the vice or the fixation of the type, you have to think about the, the types on either side, the wings, okay, that he referred to them. So... For an eight like me, if you want to understand what lust is really about, you think about the sloth of the nine and you think about the, uh, the gluttony of the seven and how they mm. fold in like a bird folding its wings and the combination creates lust, right? It's a desire, but it's too lazy to desire everything. So it really, really desires one thing mm. and you can go around. Now, <laughs> that's interesting you know, I guess, um, it, you know, for me, that's not a real useful 
understanding of things. Some people find it really useful and can get really deep into it. But for me, it's like, eh, okay, that's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what the teaching came to be, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, that because Bob Oaks wasn't there for that lesson. All he heard was the word. Now, does this mean that we're not an eight with a nine wing or an eight with a seven wing? No, not necessarily. I mean, some people find that to be a useful way of thinking about it. I think it's a redundancy, right? I think that the subtypes far better explain variation. And when you read the descriptions of the different wings, you're really just reading about three characters squeezed into two boxes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And some of them are really clear. Like if you read the descriptions of an eight with a seven wing, you're reading about a transmitting eight. Okay. Um, but, you know, that's for me the place where the wings fall apart. So what do we know about know about trifix? The the trifix idea uh, was something that came out of Echazo's work. And it's this idea that you have one fixation in each of the centers. I have a lot of issues with that, right? I think for me, it too strongly separates the cognitive, affective, and behavioral functioning of the psyche, right? I mean, I'm really reluctant to be that strict about separating out centers. So that's one thing. The other thing is, just a, a big, huge so what factor, right? I mean, and how many how many angels are we going to count on the head of a pin, right? I mean, it's like how 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 fine are we going to slice and dice this, and at what point does it become irrelevant and not useful? For me, mm-hmm. this tri type thing um, really just gets beyond utility. Okay, but let me come back to the the, the development of the idea. So, an enneagram teacher heard this idea at a party from some of the, um, or some barbecue or something like that from, uh, is my understanding, from some Arika folks. Arika was the Echazo school in Arika, Chile. Arika is a city in the north of Chile. Yes. So then took this idea and started extrapolating her own understanding of it took this idea of there being, you know, you have a type in each center and started calling it the trifix. And my understanding again, actually, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. She was calling it the trifix first. Okay. And then faced legal action and had to change it to tri-type. Okay. So it started becoming known as the tri-type. Now, my point, other than getting so granular as to be not very useful, is that when I hear people talk about the 27 tri-type archetypes, all I hear are subtypes, okay? Why are there 27 of them, okay? What else are there 27 of, okay? The 27 subtypes. And whenever I hear the description of these 27 tri-type archetypes, it's just people describing the, the subtypes without realizing it. Okay. So my view is what has happened is there are all these pieces coming together that are redundant. Okay. Wings. Oh, okay. Well, we understand it better because we have these wings. Oh, we understand it better because we have these tri-types. And we understand it even. So what do we do with it? That's exactly right. Exactly right. And it's, you keep, you're just saying the same thing over and over again. 
And, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Occam and Occam's razor, which says don't add variables, right? If you can explain something in two steps, why add a third? So let's just stick with the instinctual biases and the strategies from my view. But some people find this useful. And if you find it useful, then okay, right? Uh, we don't teach it because it just overly complicates things. Yeah, and to me, you can say that the work is in two parts. Kind of the first part is to get identified and see yourself more clearly and find your type and your subtype and all that. And then what do we do with it? What do we do about it? And that to me is the main, the most important work. To me, adding all these layers and variables of um, tri-type wings and all that keeps you stuck in the first part in seeing yourself, in explaining yourself, but doesn't move you any forward. And it's less interesting to me. It also is the source of a huge amount of mistyping that happens, right? Because people will say, oh, well, that's because I have this wing, or that's because my tri-type is showing, or that's because of this or because of that, right? And when you have a map the size of the city, it becomes useless, right? Because it really doesn't tell me anything. So the more we add variables, to piggyback on Maria Jose was, was, was saying, is the further we get away from something that's actionable, okay? And if we keep coming back to something simpler, you have to start working on it. Right. You know, but if I keep saying, right. you know, because I see people give these descriptions of, oh, you know, I'm a I'm a uh, eight wing six with a five. Yeah, I'm an eight wing seven, six wing five, two wing one. Social, you know, sexual, uh, self press social, <laughs> sexual, you know, and it's like good grief, you know, uh, mm. you know, what do I do with all of that? What I have heard people say is it does help them continue to look deeper, even if it's even it's if it's overly complicated, it does bring up certain things, um, whether it's accurate or not. It helps them see certain patterns that they're not aware of. And I think that is useful. But uh, we just on Fathoms, we just had a conversation um, and it was, it was part of it was about um, if all these details and structures and explanations of your inner psyche isn't leading to some level of growth and more compassion for yourself and others then it's then it's not useful it's not it's not, or you're not using it well or or whatever and i think that is that's the biggest thing and i think that's why awareness to action stays with the types and the instinctual biases is there's, it's lots of work has gone into all of those descriptions, both in awareness to action and outside of that. There's a lot of material around that. Um, and there's a lot of um, practices and easy next steps. And I think we can easily skip the growth part when we feel like we're understanding ourselves better. Yeah. Because understanding ourselves better is a lot easier than doing the actual hard work. Yeah. Uh, completely agree. Right, So there are different approaches to every wisdom tradition. In Buddhism, there's Zen Buddhism, right? Where the, the advice is sit up straight and breathe, right? And then just beyond that, just shut up, 
right? Sit up straight and breathe. And then there are other approaches. The Tibetan approach is very detailed, very nuanced, very complex. In uh, Christianity, you have, you know, the Lutherans who, you know, very sparse, the Quakers, very sparse in their approach. And then you have the Roman Catholics that are much more elaborate and so forth. And that's fine because different people are drawn to different things. Okay. So, again, I don't want to... I want to be careful about. We don't want to demonize no. yes. any of it. Yes, Absolutely. you're you're right, and and I and I can sound that way because I get frustrated, and I it feels to me sometimes that you know I've had people say, well, if you're not teaching the wings, you're not teaching the real enneagram. If you're not teaching this, you're not teaching the full enneagram, etc. Um, maybe okay, but as someone who works in the real world with busy people who are not trying to become Enneagram scholars, too many details are counterproductive. And what we always have to ask is, if we are adding layers of complexity, do those layers of complexity you know, uh, uh, justify, are they justified by the results that we get, right? Uh, meaning, if it's going to help me be that much more effective, then fine. But if we're going to add layers and all they're adding is complexity, a lot of complexity with but only a little benefit, then we probably want to leave them aside. Okay, because they start to have a not only diminishing returns, but add confusion to people. Yeah. We always want the maximum benefit with the minimum effort. Exactly. So if I can do it with two things, don't make it six. Right. Right. So let's just do a recap here, okay, of the history, right? So symbol you know, first time we identify it is that it comes from Gurdjieff's work. Okay. I have been all over the world. I have searched in every book of sacred geometry I can ever get my hands on. I have never seen the Enneagram prior to that in its current shape. Okay. As far as personality models concerned, it started with Echazo. Okay. Now, Echazo built off of a lot of knowledge he had prior to that. And if you read his letter to the transpersonal community, he talks about this idea of this, you know, building off of knowledge that came before. Naranjo took what Echazo had, and if you watch what Naranjo says, he says, yeah, you know, I, I got the kernel of the idea from Echazo, but I really created what we know as the modern Enneagram of personality. Naranjo taught it to a bunch of folks, and they've spread out from there. Okay, so that's the way to think about it. Yeah, and that's what we've gathered along the years, it's not what we want to believe necessarily. It's what several people have shared with us. And that's a story we have been able to put together, right? Because it feels like it's almost what I think happened. But several people have shared their piece of their story with us. Yeah, for sure. And with the um, with the Echazo and Arano parts, again, if you can find um, Echazo's letter to the transpersonal community, which is it used to be easy to find on the Eureka uh, website, but now you have to really work for it. And it's 41 pages long of, you know, a lot of Jeez. stuff. So, um, but it's that. And then the video that we talked about with Naranjo where he describes this. So just to reiterate here, right? We, we are not demonizing other schools, right? We're not, no. we're not saying other people have it wrong. We have it right. 
but there is but i think the question to walk away with here is not the right or wrong the good the bad necessarily but is whatever whoever you're following whatever you're consuming is it leading you to a greater sense of compassion love wisdom and awareness and just constantly staying curious and critical at what you're consuming and making sure you're not overcomplicating it so that you have like too much too many tools on your back that you can't climb up the mountain so that's i guess for me that's that's the takeaway for me and i hope that um that it, that was communicated throughout the episode yeah and and one more thing it is really tempting to fall for these great stories even more so with a with a teacher who is a charismatic teacher and uh we need to be alert and try to think critically when we're listening to these stories even two hours just mm-hmm. uh you can test it you can kind of find for yourself what the what's the real story you don't need to trust us necessarily but i would encourage people to be careful about that think critically and not mm-hmm. try to and not believe a story because it just feels good yeah yeah and and i'm not seeking to um demonize any approach or any individual teachers right because they're if the enneagram teaches us nothing else is that there are different ways of seeing things Right, mm-hmm. that there are different schools of psychology, primarily because there are different ways of seeing things, and people respond to different things. The only thing I would demonize is this idea that there's a one true enneagram, right? That there's only one enneagram, and it is this secret knowledge that's thousands and thousands of years old. Because I hear people falling into that, right? So mm-hmm. that's the idea that I'm criticizing: that there's one truth, and I have it, and to Maria, and, and I have it, right? Yeah. And you, so to Maria Jose's point, be critically thinking about everything that you hear about the Enneagram, including anything you hear on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Right? And Absolutely. does it stand up? Especially anything that Mario says. That's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, y'all. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast.